coming up on this episode of Crime Family. It's no disguise. It's no disguise. It makes no sense. It doesn't fit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. So the trial was a real-life soap opera that was playing out for the world to see with a high-profile celebrity at the center of it all. The accusation was that the LAPD planted key evidence in order to frame O.J. for the murders. Those are pretty intense allegations, saying that they are planting blood evidence from this glove that they also planted. That's just manipulating the jury's minds of how O.J. Simpson was perceived. Looking at all of those factors, it's going to be an uphill battle for the prosecution just from the outset. So that's not looking good either. That's super sketchy. No, I think that's sketchy. So just sketchy upon sketchy. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Crime Family. I'm AJ, and I'm here with Stephanie and Katie. And this is part three of our O.J. Simpson case overview or breakdown. So if you've listened to the first two parts, um, then you'll know that we are covering the O.J. Simpson case in depth. And so far, we've kind of gotten up to the trial. So, you know, we talked about O.J.'s early life and his career and also, you know, the murders and the crime scene. And then, like, what happened in the first few days after the murders took place, which involved the Bronco chase and some of the evidence that was piling up against OJ. So definitely go listen to those first two parts if you haven't. This episode is going to be focused on, you know, the trial and the important pieces of the trial. Also, just, like, keep in mind that the trial for this case went on for 11 months when it happened. So there is a lot to go over. So we're not actually going to cover, of course, every you know, little detail that there is. So we're just kind of kind of give you the overview and the main important pieces that there are to talk about. So even though we're going to talk about the trial in this episode, I actually want to start out and give a little bit of information on something that's not related to OJ or actually not even about this trial at all, but just important information and context, because it's really going to help to understand sort of what goes on later in the trial. Only a few short years before the Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman murders was another case that happened in the Los Angeles area, and that was the Rodney King versus the LAPD case and trial that took place in 1992. So the events in question for that case actually took place on March 3rd of 1991. Rodney King was a 25-year-old black man, and he was the victim of severe police brutality at the hands of a few LAPD officers. So how it happened was Rodney was driving intoxicated on the freeway, and I think he had a couple of other people in the car. And as a result of this, 
Um, you know, he refused to pull over for the police, so he started to speed away, and a police chase ensued. After an eight-mile police chase, all vehicles eventually came to a stop, and Rodney, who was unarmed, ended up being severely beaten by the officers during his arrest. He had, you know, been tased and a stun gun, and he had been physically assaulted and punched and just really, really terrible assault, which was far above and beyond, you know, just arresting him. It was, of course, overkill. And the beating by these police officers was filmed by a local resident from their balcony. They saw the commotion taking place and decided to just film it and sent it to a local news station. After this footage got released on the news, a firestorm really er erupted because, you know, it definitely, well, it wasn't the first instance of such violence from the police against a black man, but it was one of the first to be captured on video. And this was before the time of cell phones. It was, you know, 1991 when this is happening. So now you can film everything and anything you want. But in the early 1990s, very few that were actually caught on videotape like this one was. So due to this, the Rodney King case was a very unique one at that time and became a high-profile case in the early 90s. In this case, there was absolutely no disputing what had transpired during the arrest because all you have to do is look at the video footage of the incident and you'll see, you know, the amount of harm that they did to Rodney King. And, you know, it wasn't just his word against the LAPDs, like you can see it for yourself on the video. At the time that this had happened in the early 90s, the LAPD already had quite a terrible reputation. You know, there had been rumors flying or there had been other cases where they were known for being corrupt or just unjust in many aspects, you know, either planting evidence or, you know, being racist, having a lot of racist police officers and just a lot of questionable behavior from them. So at the time that this happened, there was already sort of that attitude toward the LAPD that people were not really on their side. And then after seeing the footage of this, it just, you know, pushed that over the edge. So Rodney survived the attacks. He had a brief hospital stay and he was in a wheelchair for a little bit of time after. But the four LAPD officers that were involved in the attack were, of course, all white, and they were charged with assault and the use of excessive force. After a criminal trial, the jury eventually came to a very controversial verdict of not guilty. So that meant that all of the officers involved in the incident were let off scot-free and, you know, didn't have really any consequences at all for their brutal assault of King. This triggered what is now known as the 1992 Los Angeles riots. And the riots began on April 29th of 92, so, you know, the day of the verdict. And it involved thousands of people who rioted in the streets for a total of six days in the L.A. metropolitan area. So during this time, fires were set, buildings were vandalized, and it was just total chaos in the, you know, metropolitan area. Police, police were everywhere. People were, you know, getting hurt and trampled. It was just a total, total mess in the city for those six days. And... It was really an uprising of the black community against the police and, you know, to protest this verdict. And to put it into a little bit of, you know, context, it's somewhat, you know, it's the equivalent of what we saw in the George Floyd case back in 2020. And, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with that case where a police officer ended up murdering an unarmed black man during an arrest. And, you know, the footage of that went viral and led to this political and social uprising against police brutality. It was kind of like the resurgence of the social 
awareness of police brutality and the call against it and and to end it. So while while Rodney King thankfully survived his assault, unlike George Floyd, the impact in this case was similar. So, but in in the George Floyd case, I mean, the officer was found guilty of his murder and he did go to jail. But unfortunately, the Rodney King case didn't have that out, outcome where all the police were exonerated. But I just wanted to talk about the Rodney King case and just have just for you to have that on your mind because I do think it's really important when you think about the context of this case and you know this case and trials happening in 94 95 so that's like right just a couple of years after the the Rodney King verdict and so that was still very much on people's minds the black community's fractured relationship with the LAPD had been going on for decades and came to a climax during the early 90s during that case. So because of this, the LAPD were already not in a good light in the public's eyes, and therefore the seed of mistrust had long been planted before O.J. Simpson became the defendant. So under this context, it became clear that the prosecution in the O.J. case was going to have to overcome that perception of corruption that had long loomed over them. So here they were again, prosecuting another Black defendant for two murders this time, and because of O.J.'s superstar defense team, the LAPD's past reputation would certainly come back to haunt them and would be brought up during the trial. So when I look at all the evidence that we've talked about, you know, in the first two episodes and even all the other stuff that we didn't mention yet, and I kind of look at this case, it's pretty clear to me what happened just based on the objective facts. But, you know, we have to remember that this case and every case that we cover for that matter doesn't exist in a vacuum. There are political and social issues that get thrown in and involved into every single criminal trial and a particular outcome has to be looked at and understood within the context of the time that it's actually happening so you know it's easy for us to sit here and say you know the verdict and the trial and all that stuff but you know when it's happening in real time in the 90s right after this rodney king thing you know it it's potentially easier to understand kind of what goes down in this trial if you look at it from that perspective in the mid-1990s the lapd and the prosecution were not seen as the good guys at all. They were actually just a symbol of the corrupt system that was placing yet another black man on trial, and that black man happened to be America's most beloved celebrity. Looking at all of those factors, it's going to be an uphill battle for the prosecution just from the outset. Yeah, and also I think, I'm not sure if this comes up a little bit later, but they obviously had stuff like this in mind when they were thinking about jury selection. They were very picky when picking the jurors because they wanted to kind of, they were very much aware of like what was happening with the police and the black community at this time. So I've heard from different sources how they think that that selection, I don't know, maybe would make or break the case kind of. Yeah. And actually, now that you mentioned that, I actually had watched, I think it was an interview with the prosecutor, Marsha Clark, and she was talking about when at the time that they were doing the jury selection, you know, they would go in and the prosecution would go and talk to the potential jurors. And then when they had the full amount of jurors, they said, you have to understand that it's not revenge time. Like, this is a very separate case from the Rodney King trial. Like in the Rodney King case, we as the prosecutors were the ones trying the police officers. They were, you know, being charged and the, we as the prosecution in Los Angeles, we were the ones trying to get them to go to jail. And it was the jury that had exonerated them. So she was like, you know, we're not the bad guys. And that was a very different case. You have to look at the objective facts. And then apparently 
it got back to her and the team that someone on the jury said, no, it is revenge time. Like they had made that comment to one of the other jurors. And instead of having that juror booted, I think she explained like they had to call that juror into chambers, I guess, and they had to talk about it. And she, of course, denied it. So they didn't end up booting her from the jury. Like she was able to stay on the jury or they were able to stay on the jury. I'm not sure if it was a man or a woman, but that kind of goes to show you that like some of the jurors, or at least this one juror had in her mind very clearly that it was revenge time for Rodney King or for the black community in general. So, geez, you think they would have got booted off the jury without a question for a comment like that, whether it was true or not? I'd be like, yeah, you got to go. Yeah, because I think like probably one of the other jurors reported it to the judge and then they would have to, of course, question that juror. I don't think they could just boot you without at least questioning you. And then she probably denied it, which if they deny it, then, you know, what can you do? <laughs> you kind of just have to go take it's her word against the other person's word, right? So just like a, a sticky situation and definitely. They should have just candor. <laughs> you don't want people like that who might waver a decision or something like that. Yeah. And we all know that like a jury has to come to a unanimous decision. So if you have one jury member from the outset saying like, no, it's revenge time, then you know no matter what, they're probably going to be very unlikely to, even if all other 11 jurors were saying he was guilty, you know, it's going to be very unlikely that she's going to want to go in that route if this is what she's saying from the outset. So was the jury like, I can't remember, was it all just like African-American or was it like a mixture of? I know that the majority was black women, I think. And they kind of consciously did that because the defense felt that black women would be the most like level headed or most sympathetic towards OJ's case, I guess. So it ended up being mostly black women, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think that's right. It was definitely like mixed race. There were white people. There were probably Hispanics. Uh, there were like black people. So I think it wasn't mixed. I don't think it was evenly split. But I think also going to the black women thing, I think maybe in in there was there might have been a little bit of resentment because, you know, Nicole was a white woman. And so I think the defense thought that there might have been resentment towards Nicole because OJ had married someone who wasn't black. I think that is that gets brought up. I don't know if it's in the documentary I watched, but there was sort of that air around like there could have been some resentment towards the victim in this case, which is like crazy to think that you would even be thinking that um, if they're the victim of a violent crime. But maybe the defense was like hoping that these people would think that. Like you have to go through a screening process, right? To be on a like, on the jury, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you get like, I think you get called in like to, for jury duty and then you get asked questions because you have to find people that don't know anything about the case at all. Or people that obviously aren't going to be biased one way or the other. Like, are you, you're not allowed to know anything about a case when you go to jury, right? Like, you have to be, like, completely clean slate. Yeah, but I think in this case, it was kind of impossible to find people that didn't know anything about it, right? Because that Bronco chase was all over the news. So they'd have to go to, like... Yeah, like, then they say 90 million people watched it? Yeah, like, 95 million, yeah. So it would have been impossible to find people that didn't know about it mm. and even if you didn't know about the specifics of the case you still at least probably knew who oj was and you were probably a fan of him and liked him yeah exactly and also that, that since we're talking about the jury also in some of my research i heard that they didn't find this out till later but one of the jury members was actually a member of like the black panthers which was like a black rights group back then or maybe still is 
They interview him in the documentary. Oh, in one of the documentaries? Okay, yeah. yeah. So they didn't know that, obviously, when they picked this guy. But he was very much never going to go against OJ, you know, because he was all for, like, black power and, and things. So obviously they don't feel like they screened them very well or didn't do a good enough background check. But Yeah, it's in that documentary, OJ Innocent or whatever. They do a brief interview with him and ask him, like, well, his side, I guess, what he thought about it. So it's just interesting to hear when um, the interview I watched with Marsha Clark, when she was trying to make the point of, like, we tried to prosecute the officers in the Rodney King case and we lost. So don't hold it against us, you know, that result, which is a good point, because, you know, when I was talking about it, it's like, you know, they really prosecution works for, or, you know, there's like the state and like the prosecutor are trying to prosecute, I, obviously. But, like, you know what I mean? So I guess it was a good point that she brought up of, like, we were the ones that were trying to get these officers to get and go to jail. And then we lost that. But, obviously, people still held resentment. Okay, so before we get into the actual trial, I just want to bring up this is another point that F. Lee Bailey made, who was, again, one of OJ's defense attorneys. He states that he feels that the trial should have never even proceeded past the pretrial. And so the pretrial is just like the preliminary trial with just the judge and then there's the both sides. So the defense and the prosecution are both presenting evidence and witnesses. And that's when the judge decides if there's sufficient evidence to take the case to a full trial with a jury. And Bailey was not on the defense team during the pretrial, but he says that it was very poorly done on the defense's side. And so he says basically because of that, the pre-trial judge deemed that it was necessary for a full trial. On July 22nd, 1994, OJ entered his plea as, quote, absolutely 100% not guilty. And so this brings me to a couple more of those pillars of innocence that Bailey talks about, just to kind of put another perspective on why he feels OJ is innocent. So in his book, he suggests that OJ really had no motive to kill Nicole, he says that OJ had a girlfriend at the time and he was not concerned with Nicole anymore. He apparently tried to make plans with his girlfriend that night, but that fell through. And then he made plans with Cato or they went to McDonald's that evening. So his point was why give yourself so little time to commit this crime if you were planning on doing it? Basically, like if you're planning on, if you're going to plan on doing these murders, why go out? to mcdonald's till like 9 30 at night when you had to catch a flight in a couple hours also he says there's nothing that seemed to provoke oj to go from completely fine to enraged about nicole and so there was nothing that motivated him that night to commit the murders and i guess to me i feel like this is a little bit weak weak evidence we heard in that 911 call from nicole you can hear OJ in the background how enraged he was after he stormed into Nicole's home. And so, I mean, what provoked him that night? It could have just been something as simple as he saw her with somebody, something triggered in his mind that made him just drive over there, be super mad with her about something. So, I mean, we really don't know what was going on in his mind. Maybe he just drove by her house and something flashed in his mind and triggered him enough to be super mad in that moment. The last pillar of innocence that I'm going to talk about is he calls the shadow pillar. And so this is the circumstantial evidence surrounding the case. 
For example, that glove that was found on OJ's property. So there is more than one possible way it could have gotten there. We know that OJ could have dropped it there after he committed the murders. Someone else who committed the murders could have put it there to try and frame OJ. And then another option is that detective who found it could have placed it there to try and frame OJ as well. So when this type of circumstantial evidence is present during a trial, the judge must tell the jury if a proven fact supports two different inferences, one of which points towards guilt and one which does not, you must vote not guilty. And so this is where a reasonable doubt comes in, right? Because, I mean, if there's two possible scenarios, one where he, if it's true, he did it, and one, you know, where he didn't do it, that makes sense, because that's where a reasonable doubt comes in. And, I mean, I can agree with this if the glove was the only solid piece of evidence that they had. And so, yeah, there's a reasonable doubt there for sure, but of course there's tons more. And so, of course, as we know, the trial did go forward. And as we said, it was known as the trial of the century. All right. So um, we're officially at the time of the trial now. And it's on January 24th, 1995, when the trial officially begins. And that's only seven months after the murders took place. And so a murder case of this magnitude would usually take years to prepare, you know, due to the amount of evidence that they have to gather, both sides have to gather, and, you know, the amount of witnesses that they have to call to testify. So... It's a very high-profile case, so, you know, it takes a long time, but it was really only seven months. Um, and I think this is because OJ did not waive his right to a speedy trial, because normally, they'll, you know, everyone's entitled to a speedy trial, so you can either waive that or not. But OJ, I guess, wanted a speedy trial, um, so that meant that the defense and the prosecution had to sort of work overtime getting both of their cases ready to go by the January start date. And maybe this was also a strategy by the defense, too. They wanted the prosecution to have less time, maybe, to prepare their case. I'm not really sure, but for whatever reason, I mean, the case or the trial starts just seven months after the murders. Judge Lance Ito was the judge that was presiding over the court. And the entirety of the court proceedings from day one are captured and broadcast live on TV for the world to see. And prior to this there wasn't really a 24-hour news cycle, and court TV wasn't really a thing. But, you know, here it was. You know, court TV was, you know, a 24-hour news station that was broadcasting this case at all times. So this trial really gave birth to that idea of court TV and maybe even the whole notion of the true crime genre and the obsession with, you know, cases like this. The whole world was watching this trial play out, and... So OJ, along with all of the key players that were in this case, you know, the lawyers on both sides of the courtrooms and all of the people involved really became household names. In the year 1995, everybody knew the names. Johnny Cochran, who was OJ's defense attorney, one of them. They also knew, you know, Marsha Clark, Chris Darden. Those are two of the prosecutors. And people like Cato Kalin, Al Cowlings, Mark Furman, and even Faye Resnick, people knew. So Faye Resnick, like, she's not really super relevant to this case, but just... I just want to provide this example to kind of give you an idea of how crazy this had all gotten. So Faye Resnick was one of Nicole Brown's closest friends. And during the time that the trial was happening, she became tabloid fodder because she had a highly publicized drug addiction and she ended up having a stay in rehab um, close around to around the time that the murders took place. And she, ended up, she lived with Nicole for a few months, I think after she had gotten out of rehab. And... So she kind of got thrown into everything because 
either, I don't know if it was the defense who was saying it, but there was like rumors out there that, you know, the killer could have been a drug dealer who was, you know, looking for Faye at the house that night and then just killed Nicole and Ron when things got violent or they didn't find Faye or whatever. So it's just things like that that just get thrown in there and the tabloids are all over it. And like there's interviews I saw that Faye Resnick, she was on like Larry King talking about the case and her relationship with Nicole. So just like goes to show you that all of these people are coming out of the woodwork and everything is getting thrown out there, which is a good thing the jury is sequestered because you really couldn't make your way through all of this shit that's getting spewed on the TV because half of it's just tabloid garbage. So the trial was a real life soap opera that was playing out for the world to see with a high profile celebrity at the center of it all. So one of the biggest moments of the trial occurred when LAPD officer Mark Furman took the stand. And so as we talked about in the previous parts, you know, he was the police officer who was at OJ's Rockingham estate in the early morning hours of June 13th. And he was the officer who found the brown glove on OJ's property. So because of this, his testimony was critical to the case. So the defense's strategy throughout all of this was to try and discredit the evidence that was found by not only Furman, but by everyone else that was involved in the investigation. You know, I think the prosecution had so much evidence, physical and DNA evidence, that they really, their number one goal was to just, if they could, you know, throw doubt about the legitimacy of that evidence and the people involved, then it could really throw the def- the prosecution's case off. So the accusation Katie talked a little bit about before, but the accusation was that the LAPD planted key evidence in order to frame OJ for the murders, for whatever reason. And the defense claimed that the blood that was inside and on OJ's Ford Bronco was planted by officers and that the glove was planted at OJ's place to create that connection between the crime scene and OJ. And so with the context of the Rodney King trial already outlined, the defense really had to pin these key detectives in the case as being complicit with the toxicity that surrounded the LAPD at that time and to put doubt into the jurors' minds about the LAPD during the investigation. And if they were able to discredit a key witness and show him to be a liar in court, then his credibility would be completely destroyed. And therefore, doubt about anything that he had to do within this case would also be put into the jury's mind. So Mark Furman had testified early in the trial, and he had, when you know being cross-examined or questioned, had denied ever using a racial slur to describe a Black person during his career. But upon cross-examination by the defense, there were actual audio recordings of Mark Furman himself using the N-word several times. And these recordings were played in court. And these recordings, you know, these were completely unrelated to the OJ case or to OJ. I think they had been recorded years before in a completely separate situation. But it did show that, you know, he lied when he said that he had never used those words. And so during the course of this one cross-examination, the defense attorney, F. Lee Bailey, who's the one that wrote that book that Katie's been talking a lot about. So this one cross-examination was able to show Furman as not only a despicable person and a total racist who used the N-word to describe Black people several times. And it was several times on the, on the tape. But this showed him, besides all that, to be a liar in the courtroom. And this discredited his entire testimony. So... You know, is it possible for a racist LAPD cop to plant evidence at OJ's place of residence in order to frame him? You know, that's absolutely a possibility. We can't rule it out completely. 
So even though the prosecution had several more compelling pieces of evidence to present, it didn't really do much to convince the jury that Mark Furman was anything but a crooked cop or a racist. And so the prosecution was going to really need to work overtime to overcome that obstacle. And they were going to need, you know, a ton of undisputable evidence against OJ that had nothing to do with Mark Furman. So this was, of course, a major blow to the prosecution's case. So in the interviews that I've watched with lead prosecutor Marsha Clark, so she was actually did an interview on the Wendy Williams show in 2016. And in this interview, one of the questions that comes up is Marsha Clark is asked if she regretted putting Mark Furman on the stand. Because it's kind of been widely described as this is the one of the major moments where the prosecution, you know, lost the case. From her perspective, she kind of explains it that, you know, the prosecution really had no choice but to put him on the stand because of the simple fact that he was the one who found the glove at Rockingham. So therefore, you know, if they don't have him testify, then, you know, the other cops that are involved in this investigation are going to be called to testify and they're going to be on the stand and they're going to be asked the question, did you find the glove? And then they're going to have to say, no, they didn't. And so, you know, they would be asked, well, who did find the glove? And then they would have to say that it was Mark Furman. And then the question would be, well, why isn't he here? Why didn't the prosecution call him? You know, what is it that they're hiding? Why don't they want him to? To testify. So in the prosecution's mind, it was kind of like, we have to just bring him to the stand because it's going to come up anyway, and we don't want it to make it look shady that we're hiding stuff from the jury. And that would just make them distrust us completely. So they really had no choice, and it was like an impossible situation. I don't think they were aware of the audio tapes that were going to be played or that the extent of them. So that was still a surprise to them, but they um kind of in an impossible situation, if you think about it that way. Like in their minds, it was going to come to that no matter what. So they thought that they just had to bring him on the stand and, you know, do their best to overcome that obstacle regardless. And, you know, they still felt that they had a really strong case with all the other pieces of evidence they had. So that was just something that they were going to have to deal with. It just blows my mind that he thought he could get away with, like, lying to the court about him not being a racist and not saying those things. Well, he probably didn't know those tapes existed either or that they were going to come up. No, but he's like, he's a cop though. So you think like, you think he'd be smarter than that. And I also think too, it's like both things can be true. Like he, like Mark Furman can be a racist and a terrible person and a crooked cop. And OJ can also be guilty of the murders. Like, you know, it's not, they're not mutually exclusive things. So just because he's proved to be a racist doesn't mean that OJ still didn't do it. So I think that's also something that's important to mention too. But I guess, you know, once I doubts in the jury's mind they can't really overcome that very easily yeah and there's even some that say that they think oj was guilty and that evidence was planted just to make sure that he was convicted and it wasn't so like they were trying to frame an innocent man it was like they were trying to just make sure that oj was convicted with this crime and so that's kind of where i'm going to go into some of this dna evidence that was presented and didn't make it to the trial this is also from you know the defense's point of view and some of this stuff has like come out as maybe conspiracy theory and so just kind of take that as it is just have that in mind when I go through some of this stuff and so the prosecution presented all of this DNA theory as if they had a mountain of evidence and Bailey says that it's better described as a molehill of evidence. So he says it really wasn't like this huge mountain. 
of evidence that they had to present. It was rather small. And so he goes into detail about some of the mishandling of the DNA. So I'll sum it up here. So I guess there were five blood drops gathered at the scene of the murders that were consistent with OJ's DNA. The problem was that they were so small that they had to use a method called PCR testing, which basically takes that tiny piece of DNA and makes clones of it so that larger samples can then be tested using regular DNA methods. And this type of testing is very susceptible to contamination. And the LAPD had only recently started using this method, and so the technicians were not very confident. And additionally, there were multiple mishandlings and mislabeling of blood evidence, so they're questioning the accuracy, and they say that it was definitely tainted, a lot of these samples, because of the procedures and just mishandling. Also, there was blood found on the gate at Nicole's property, and investigators testified that they had seen the blood the morning after the murders, but it wasn't actually collected until July 3rd, which was 21 days after the murders. And even though it was apparently exposed to the elements for three weeks, there was no sign of degradation on the samples that were tested. And so a DNA expert that they talked to, John Gerds, he testified that that really didn't make sense. If that was true and the blood was out there for three weeks, it would definitely have signs of degradation. And so they're saying that that doesn't really add up with what the prosecution testified. So that's just like a discrepancy there. There was also apparently evidence of EDTA, which is a preservative used when they're drawing blood, in some of the samples that they had supposedly collected from that gate. So further, it was noted that some of the blood that was drawn from OJ during the investigation was also missing So there was originally eight cc's originally in the tube when they collected OJ's blood. And later there was only 6.5 cc's left. And when the defense questioned that, the prosecution just said that eight cc's was just an estimate of how much blood they had. So that's maybe where the discrepancy came from. But what the defense, I think, is trying to get at here is that some of that blood was taken from OJ's actual sample that he submitted and had the that preservative in it, and that is what they put in certain places to make it look like OJ's blood was all over the place. This gives me, like, um, Making a Murderer vibes, because that the police in that documentary were accused of doing that, that same thing. I don't know if anything ever came out about whether that missing blood was ever accounted for, whether it was just a mistake, whether there actually was EDTA found, but this is what the defense presented. Like, how does blood just go missing, though? Like, I don't understand. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like somebody took the blood out of there, is what they're saying. But do we know that they actually did? Like, the defense is saying that there was this much, or I guess it's, you know, documented that there was only a certain amount. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm really not sure The prosecutor said when they said eight cc's, that was just their estimate, not an exact amount. So I'm really not sure. That's still kind of fuzzy whether that was true or not. So there was also blood found on OJ's driveway in his foyer and on the floor of his master bathroom. And the defense says that OJ had a cut from a golf injury that day. So it makes sense that his blood would be all over the place and he's just kind of bleeding in his own house. Was it the cut on his hand? Yeah, I think that's what they're talking about, but 
I don't know for sure. So doesn't that go against what they said? Because the whole argument was that he cut his hand in Chicago. Yeah. But remember, the, there was also that instance where he told one of his friends that he had been chipping golf balls and that's where he cut his hand. So I guess if that's the golf injury, that lines up. But now they're admitting that there was a cut that he had. Yeah, so actually, I, I was going to talk about this a bit later because I did find actually where that audio was of that broken glass in Chicago. And OJ does say that he cut his hand on glass in Chicago. And he also says that he, but he already had a cut there and he just kind of like reopened it while he was in Chicago. So he had the cut already, made it worse in Chicago. So that's why there's blood everywhere he is, basically. Sketch. It's bleeding all over the place, yeah. <laughs> so also, inside his Bronco, they found traces of OJ's, Nicole's, and Ron's blood, like very small traces. And Bailey suggests that this was the work of Furman, who was alone searching the property for 15 minutes. And he suggests that they use the DNA from the glove to contaminate the Bronco before planting it on the property. Those are pretty intense allegations saying that they are planting blood evidence from this glove that they also planted. Yeah, and that's why also part of what, because in the documentary I watched, the OJ Made in America, like Mark Furman, he's describing this timeline of how he went with other officers to the property to find OJ or whatever that first morning. And then they saw Cato and spoke with him. The other officers left and then he stayed with Cato. So that's like that 15 minutes where he was on the property by himself. So I guess that's when they're alleging that he, in that 15 minutes, was planting all this. Yeah, that's what, that is what they're saying. I think another thing to bring up is important is that people are saying that all the, the all the DNA evidence was contaminated, it wasn't handled properly, but then somebody brought up like, well, if it was so badly contaminated, why is it always only OJ, Nicole's, or Ron's blood and DNA that's found? Like, if it was really badly contaminated, there'd be like some other random person's blood, like the, the technician's DNA could get mixed in there, something else from the lab, but no, it's always just those three, so that doesn't really make that much sense if they're claiming that you know the lab was inadequate so that's just another thing to think about as well they also did an experiment that that they say proved that the right hand glove so this was the glove that was found on oj's property was placed in an airtight container or a bag and then it was placed at the scene because they're saying that the blood was not dry when it was found and the experiments that they did, when they left blood out that long, it would have been dried by the time it was found. But when they put it in like a Ziploc bag and then took it out after a few hours, it was still wet. So that's what they're saying. Mark found it, maybe put it in a little baggie and then brought it to the scene and took it out. And it was still wet when he happened to have found it. So that's just another thing to think about, I guess. They also say that the left-hand glove had no traces of OJ's DNA and no cuts or holes in it at all. Also, a sock was found in OJ's house that had Nicole's blood on it, and police photos and videos had inconsistent timestamps about when the sock was discovered. So they're saying in some videos, like the initial videos of the crime scene, they're saying that the sock wasn't there, but then there was pictures that were taken, and then the sock is there. So they're saying, well, why wasn't it there to start with, and then happened to be there later? Also, police claimed in September 
that the sock had Nicole's blood on it, yet it wasn't even sent to the lab until November, so how could they have known that? A lot of this is considered to be part of a conspiracy theory, now that the cops, particularly Furman, planted the evidence to frame OJ. However, when he was asked under oath if he had tampered with any of the evidence for this case, he pled the fifth, which is not having to answer, not having to say no, which would have, you know, you perjure yourself, but then not having to straight up, straight up admit it. So pleading the fifth is kind of like not wanting to actually tell the truth. So that's kind of sketchy. <laughs> is that Mark Furman? Yeah. Pled the fifth? Oh. Sketchy. Yeah, he was pleading. Yeah, he was pleading the fifth for a lot of things, and that was one of the questions that came up, and he pled the fifth for that one as well. So, I don't know. Why not just say no if you actually didn't, right? So, hmm. <laughs> yeah, and so I brought this up before, like in the last episode, we talked about OJ cutting himself on the glass. This audio was brought up in the Dateline podcast and their episode called "The People versus OJ Simpson: What the Jury Never Heard." And so it had a snippet of OJ's interview with police and he talks about cutting himself in Chicago. So when he's asked how he did in Chicago, he says, quote, I broke the glass. One of you guys had just called me and I was in the bathroom and I just kind of went bonkers for a little bit, end quote. And then they ask, is that how you cut it? And then he says, quote, it was there before, but I think I just opened it again. I'm not sure, end quote. So that's where the blood and the cut on his finger apparently ties into all this. So just sketchy upon sketchy, to say the least. Like, I don't know why, like, why is this cut thing so important? Like, well, because if he cut themselves all the time. Well, no, but like, it depends. Like, why would he have a cut on his finger? Like, it just makes it look bad. Like, if he was the murderer. I guess. But like, to me, that didn't really, it wasn't really, when I watched it, it wasn't really relevant to me. Like people cut their hand all the time, like... Yeah, but if people are saying that he didn't have it the day before the murder, and then after the murder, he all of a sudden has it. And then he's, like, lying about when he got it. Like, did he get it in Chicago? Or... I guess. But you know how sometimes you cut yourself and you don't even remember how you did it? Yeah, but in the last episode, too, he gave, like, three different answers. Like, one of his friends, he said he was chipping golf balls. Then the other one, he said he was getting his cell phone out of the Bronco. And he cut it, and then he said it was the glass. So, like, which is it? He cut it three times in the same spot? Like, that's sketchy. And also, I think because they had found his blood on the the door by the handle of his Bronco that night of the murders. And so they were thinking that he cut himself while he was fighting with them at the scene and then got the blood all over his car that, that night because of that. Okay, well, that makes sense. But remember, because like, they found Mark Furman, or, or the officers, I guess, found the blood or what looked like blood on the door handle of the Bronco when they first went to OJ's place, like, a few hours after the murder. So there was blood at that point. But if he said that he didn't cut his hand until he went to Chicago, which was after that, then why would there be blood on the door handle then? You know what I mean? So, just sketchy. So another, another important or, like, iconic moment, I guess you could say, from this trial was actually OJ trying on the glove during the trial. And, you know, one of the most iconic phrases from this trial was, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit, which is, you know, the line that Johnny Cochran, OJ's defense attorney, said to the jury and the courtroom right before OJ tried on the glove. So the gloves were, of course, a major piece of evidence 
And it's one of the things that, as we said, have tied OJ to the scene, like one of the major things. And, you know, we've already mentioned that there was doubt about Mark Furman actually finding the glove. And the next step was to place doubt in the jurors' minds if the gloves even belonged to OJ at all. So either if they were planted, but if they didn't belong to OJ at all, then that's another whole other thing. So it was actually prosecutor Chris Darden who wanted to have OJ try on the gloves in the courtroom in front of the jury. But it was Marsha Clark who was very hesitant, and she could think of several reasons why this was just an overall terrible idea. So she kind of lists out, you know, first of all, the gloves in question had blood on them. They had been frozen and unfrozen several times, you know, during their preservation, you know, when they preserved the evidence. And also, when OJ's trying on the gloves in court, he had to wear latex gloves first on his hands before he put the glove on. And these are all things that would make the leather shrink and not fit OJ's hands properly. If you're wearing a pair of latex gloves and, you know, you're trying to get a pair of gloves on that fit you snugly, like what you have the latex glove on, it's not going to fit right. Also, OJ doesn't have any incentive to want to have them fit in court. So when he's there, you know, he's not going to be like, oh yes, I'm going to let me try very, like, very hard to get these gloves on. And also he's an actor, so he could make it seem very believable when the gloves don't fit. So just an overall disaster that was doomed from the beginning, basically. And, you know, Chris Darden kind of thought that if they didn't have OJ try on the gloves, then the defense was going to do it anyway. And so they couldn't really shy away from this moment in the courtroom. So much like with the whole Mark Furman thing, like it was going to come up, but they had to kind of confront it head on, or that's what he believed. However, Marsha's view was, you know, just let the defense have him try it on. And then when, when it inevitably doesn't fit, then they could just then pull out all the reasons as to why that I've already listed. So... But, you know, if they're the ones that kind of present this idea to the courtroom or they're the ones that are kind of on board to have OJ try on the gloves, it looks very bad on them when it backfires and then the glove doesn't fit. And that's exactly what happened. So, you know, OJ puts on quite a performance. You know, he's trying, looks like he's trying very hard to get it on, but apparently he like, you know, bending his fingers or like bending his hand a certain way that's not going to allow a glove to go on very easily at all. So, and when he puts it on in the courtroom, like it, not a good fit at all. And so this was, of course, a huge moment in, in the trial. So, if, and so that begs the question, like if the gloves don't fit him, there is that questionable or reasonable doubt of like, if he is, is he even the killer? You know, I don't really buy the fact that just because it didn't fit in that exact moment proves anything or proves that he's innocent. You know, it just proves that he didn't want to have them fit in that moment. So he's not going to have them fit in that moment. You know, however, that iconic phrase, like, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit, was still at the front of jurors' minds from that moment on. And we'll play a clip of it from the trial. Like the defining moment in this trial, the day Mr. Darden asked Mr. Simpson to try on those gloves, and the gloves didn't fit, remember these words. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. It's no disguise. It's no disguise. It makes no sense. It doesn't fit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Maybe the leather gloves that he was wearing, maybe they were too small for him to begin with, and he just had them on. Yeah, maybe he thought about that the whole time. He's like, I'm going to buy gloves that don't fit. Yeah, like, do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying he he did the crime. I'm just saying, like, if someone wants to, like, dupe the police, like, oh, I'm going to yeah, like case, I'm going to put these gloves on that don't really fit me. But I think it was also part of the trial that, like, these gloves, Nicole had bought them for OJ. Or, like, that's... 
I think that came into the courtroom, or maybe this was in the other trial after this one, but... So it wasn't actually the actual pair of gloves that they were found at the crime scene? These were just different ones? No, it was, but those were the, like, that was the thing, was like they said that these were very similar to a pair that Nicole had bought OJ, like, a year or two years before. Like, this goes to show that, like, these are his gloves, like... They didn't have proof that those were the exact gloves, but they're saying that Nicole bought him, like, these exact gloves, so they're probably are the same ones, is what they're saying. Yeah, like, if you're going to plant, if the police are going to plant gloves at a crime scene and they just happen to be the exact kind that Nicole also bought him, like, suspicious. Also, what bothers me so much about these gloves is that they didn't do any DNA testing on the inside of the gloves. Like, if they would have just done that, got DNA from the inside, they'd be like, yeah, this is who wore them. (laughs) But they, like, never did. Or they did, they just didn't test it, or there's no results out there. But, like, in that book that I read from the defense, like, he said apparently up until that point, they had never done DNA testing on those gloves. Which bothers the shit out of me. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, you'd think that'd be a very important thing. Like, I know they tested the gloves, but I thought when they tested the gloves, they did the whole inside and out. No. But apparently, like, back then, like, DNA was still, DNA testing was still in its infancy. Like, it wasn't as great as it is today. But, I mean, they didn't even try to do DNA testing on the inside. Ugh, I'd just be so curious to be, like, what DNA is in there. Because there's definitely going to be, like, sweat or, like, blood or... Isn't that where you get most DNA when you put on a pair of gloves? Yeah, and you get, like, skin cells, like, it would be in there for sure. Yeah, it bothers me a lot. Yeah. Yeah, that just seems like a very common sense thing to do. It's, like, a major oversight, for sure. And also another thing that took place during the trial that came up during the OJ Made in America documentary was that the jury actually took a field trip during the trial to OJ's Rockingham estate. And... Prior to the jury taking that walk through the home, so they actually went to his house and like got to walk through it as like, I guess, I don't know, a field trip for them. But the defense, before the juror got there, the defense went into that house and changed a lot of the photographs that were hanging on the wall. So OJ, we kind of touched on this in the first part, but OJ was known to hang around, you know, lots of rich white people, you know, the white Hollywood elite, such as the likes of Donald Trump. And he had a lot of photos of those kind of people on his walls and throughout his house. But when the jury enters that home, they see photos of OJ hanging out with his family and lots of members of the black community. And the jury was made up of several black jury members. And this was seen as an attempt by the defense to cater to that jury by showing OJ as, you know, he's one of you. Like he he embraced his his black identity and, you know, but never once in reality did he ever really identify himself as a black man or ever cater. Is that even allowed? Well, I, I know. Like it's, you know, it's. Oh, I I know. I remember this came up in the Dateline podcast, I think. And like they were talking to actually Johnny Cochran. He was like explaining himself. And he's like, it's just like as you would if someone's coming to look at your house to buy it. You know, you'll sometimes stage it. You'll buy flowers to make it more presentable. And he's like, we were just making it more presentable. I'm like, oh, that's such like a thin line between like tampering with evidence or like crime scene tampering. Ugh. Yeah, that's not making it presentable. That's just manipulating the jury's minds of how oj simpson was perceived i know but that's like you think like that's how smart the defense team was it's like every little detail like that they thought about and if you're allowed to do that then they're gonna it's just crazy yeah what kind of jury goes on a field trip these days like nobody takes the jury out on a field trip do they well maybe they do i don't know 
I I never heard of it, but I guess it's relevant. I think they still do. Yeah. No, I think that's sketchy. I mean, I don't really know what the point of this was, like, to show the house. Like, the crime didn't happen at OJ's house, so I, and obviously there was no, like, evidence. <laughs> Maybe they were just fans of OJ and they wanted to get excited to go see his house. I don't know. Yeah, th- that that's a weird thing, right? I guess it isn't tampering with the crime scene because that wasn't the crime scene. <laughs> so that's probably, like, the loophole that they got around doing it. Like, it's not crime scene tampering. Yeah, so what's the point of, like, well, they want to paint OJ as this nice, like rich person yeah i think that is what they were trying to do like that's weird like you would never take the jury to some random murderer's house in any other trial and be like this is where he lived like oh yeah and like what's your point of that and i you know i think obviously the defense is going to try to get anything passed or you know going to try to come up pull out all the stops for their clients so it's not surprising that they would try this but it's also it's like the judge's job to intervene and like say no this is like not relevant or like we can't do this but there was also a lot of like you know talk in the media that like this judge was very pro OJ or was just loved the attention of the case so it's like he was really like lenient on what things he let slide and what things he didn't so that was also a lot of controversy surrounding him too like for the judge to even allow this to happen because I can't see like the relevancy in this field trip at all and also allow them to go in before and change all of that stuff like the fact that it was allowed is crazy that's not where the crime happened, so what's the point of going through his house? To see what kind of nice stuff he has? I don't I don't know, I never that's weird to me. I don't really know, yeah, what the point of it was at all. And but obviously it's gonna influence the jury, right? If they're seeing all these photos and you know, much different photos than are normally hanging on the wall. Like they're trying to make it seem like, you know, they're trying to, you know, appeal to the black members of the jury that are gonna see him, you know hanging out with other black people and like embracing his culture when we all know that he really didn't do that. He was very closely associated with white America and the Hollywood elite. And, you know, by the look of the photos on the wall, you would never know it. Um, So just a crazy thing that even happened in the case. And also another thing that I wanted to touch on that came up in the trial, another sort of major piece of evidence or a major sort of part of it all was there was a size 12 boot print that was found at the crime scene. That was determined to belong to a pair of Bruno Mali shoes. They were a limited edition known as the Lorenzo model. So that was the type of Bruno Mali shoe that they were. In fact, there were only 299 pairs of those shoes that were sold in the U.S. at the time of the murders. And only 9% of the population wore a size 12 shoe. So it's a very limited pool. You know, there's only like 300 pairs that are ever sold and only 9% of the entire population in the U.S. has a size 12. So it's a very limited amount of people that would have a size 12 of those types of sh- boots. And O.J.'s su- shoe size, can you guess what his shoe size was? It a size 12. So, you know, that's very kind of sketchy, for sure, I would say. And so this was kind of something that came up in the trial, and there was never any proof that he actually had owned a pair of the shoes. He was quoted as saying, I would never have a pair of those ugly-ass shoes. And so there was never, like, anything definitive Um, that says that he actually did own those type of shoes or whatever. But um, I think it was after the criminal trial was over with, um, there was actually a photo that came out that was taken in 93, I believe, of OJ at a Buffalo Bills game. And he was wearing those Bruno Malley shoes that were in question. So it didn't come out in the criminal trial that he had actually officially had those pair of shoes, but that was something that 
was at least in question during the criminal trial. It was also brought up that there was more than one set of shoe prints found at the scene, and some experts claim that there are two sets, while others say that those other marks that look like shoe prints were actually, one of them was an imprint of Ron's shirt on the ground, likely as he rolled over or rolled around during the attack. And so that was just his shirt print in blood. And also there were trowel marks made when the stepping stones were made. So, you know, when there's like wet cement, you have like a trowel that goes over and it makes like these long kind of marks that sort of look like shoe prints, I guess, that had blood on them as well. And so two sets of prints were kind of ruled out by a lot of experts. So I think another important piece of evidence that didn't actually make it to the trial, a man named Skip Junis reported to Dateline in that same episode that I mentioned that on the night of the murders, he was at the airport picking up his wife at 11.30 p.m., and he says that he spots OJ pull up in his limo, and he said they had a very clear view, and he so he could tell it was OJ. And he says that OJ had a little gym bag with him, and he just kind of unzipped it enough to get his hand in there, and then he starts emptying all the contents of that bag into the trash outside the airport before he rushes inside the airport. And Skip was willing to testify. He was a credible witness, but he was actually never called to the stand to testify during the trial. And of course, by the time the police found out this information, it was too late. The All that garbage had already been emptied and was gone, so they could never prove really what OJ was dumping in the garbage. But seemingly, he dumped the contents of that little bag that he wouldn't let anybody touch into a random garbage bin at the airport. So that's not looking good either. That's super sketchy. Yeah, that's super sketchy. Because they never found the murder weapon in this case at all. Even to this day, it was never recovered. So yeah, if that is something that was seen legitimately, that's super sketchy. Yeah, it probably dumped in that that airport garbage bin and will never be found, obviously. So yeah. Yeah, so... There's lots in this case, like we've talked about kind of the main pieces of evidence or things that happened in the trial to kind of give you like, you know, the most, didn't want to go too, too deep into like every nitty gritty detail because we'd be here for hours and hours and hours and hours. But so that is kind of all of the main stuff that happened in the trial. And it's kind of all culminating in, you know, coming to the end of the trial and the verdict and then the aftermath of this case. So that's what we're going to delve into in part four. We're also going to talk, you know, debate our, you know, perspectives and our opinions on on the case and, you know, what we've talked about. Yeah, so it's going to be a good final part to kind of wrap this all up. And I really hope you guys enjoyed hearing our rundown of of the trial and our, our discussions about it. And we'll be back in part four to talk about it further. So until then, I'll see you in part four. And as always, you can like like us on Facebook and, you know, follow us on Instagram and Facebook and, and Twitter and, or X, I guess it's called now. And you can, you know, join our Patreon group if you would like to support the podcast uh, for a small fee per month. You'll get some extra content that we'll be posting on there. We'd love to have you. And yeah, give us any feedback that you have. Leave us a rating and a review. Go to our website. There's a contact form and you can leave a voicemail if you want to give us, you know, an audio feedback. We'd love it. Yeah, thanks for listening, and we'll be back with part four. So uh, until then, take care. Bye.